0: Well, good morning. It's good to have all of you here today. You know, I'm excited for today's service, as I said earlier. You know, last week we, we just finished, you know, one of the most powerful weeks in the Christian church calendar. You know, we go from Palm Sunday to Good Friday to Easter. And one week we pack in three of the most biggest events on the church calendar all in one week. And then suddenly it's all over. Done. And so then I'm like, okay, what do I preach on next? What am I going to talk about next? What's my next series on? Because, you know, it's, there's, there's just you, there's so much in that holy week, and now what do we do? And so I kept thinking all week, okay, what's next? What, what's, what's my next message about? What's the next series about? And as I kept on thinking about what's next and asking and praying about what's next, I realized, you know, the disciples probably had the exact same question on Resurrection Sunday. All right, what's next? Everything is radically different. This man that we've been following around for about three years who's been healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, suddenly he's on a cross, he dies, and he's resurrected. So what's next? What do we do now? Because everything is incredibly different on a resurrection Sunday morning. So that's where we are all today. Kind of what is next? And so I kind of thought about it for a while and I thought, okay, let's do it for the next three weeks or four weeks, whoever knows. Let's look at the last two chapters of each of the Gospels, the last two chapters of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. So we can understand what Jesus said to his disciples, some of his very last words after he was resurrected, before he ascended to God. Let's look at those last couple chapters, and let's try to understand what did Jesus say is next. You know, I think for many of the disciples, you know, after uh, the Resurrection Sunday, the Gospels do tell us that, You know, at one point, some of them were on the beach and they were back fishing. Some of them were in their house. And I think some of the disciples were probably playing over in their minds the activities that happened the last week. And I think some of them were probably saying, you know, we were really surprised this all happened. But now that it happened, they're looking back and thinking about some of the words of Jesus because Jesus told them everything that would happen during Holy Week. He told them that he would die. He told them that he would be resurrected three days later. But when, the, when it actually happened, the disciples were all surprised. You know, the women were all crying and the men were all hiding. That was what happened on Good Friday. And so I think after the resurrection, I think the disciples were probably sitting around, probably thinking, you know what? Now that I think of it, I do remember when he told us some of these things. I kind of remember he did, and suddenly they're probably looking back at some of the things that Jesus said and saying, okay, that makes sense now. I think it's easy to look at the disciples and think, you know, why didn't you pay better attention? You know, why weren't you paying better attention when he talked to you? But, you know, I think we all do the same thing in our life. See, all of us, when a hard thing happens in our life, when a hard situation happens in our life, when a trial happens in our life, when a difficult situation happens in our life, we have a tendency to sit back and say, I can't believe what's happening. How could this happen? How could God let this happen? And we just get so overwhelmed. And then we start remembering, like in the book of James, where it says, count it all joy when you face various trials. Like, oh yeah, the Bible kind of did give us a little heads up. There's going to be some tricky things that happen in our life. But then it says, you know, that testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We start to kind of remember those things. But sometimes in the middle of things going on, it's really hard to uh, remember the words of Jesus. So, so I want to look at these last couple chapters of each of the Gospels to kind of figure out a little bit of what Jesus is saying. Last week, we looked at John 20. We focused on verses 1 through 10, and today I want to go to verses 11 through 18. But before we jump into the Gospel of John chapter 20, I want to talk a little bit, take a few minutes to talk about what was going on in Jerusalem on Easter Sunday. What was going on in Jerusalem on that resurrection Sunday morning? See, if you look at the scriptures, you'll know uh, what was going on after the resurrection is that there was a feast called First Fruits. And everybody in Jerusalem would be either be participating in this feast or actually aware of these feasts. And you got to remember that all of Jesus' early followers were Jewish, so they would be participating in the first fruit celebration. So some of you might be wondering a little bit, okay, what are all these feasts about that we're talking about from the Old Testament? I know if you're new to the Bible, sometimes some of these feasts, it's easy to kind of overlook but most of you are familiar that all through the scripture, Jesus does like to talk in stories and in parables, and he likes to use a lot of analogies. And one of the analogies that Jesus uses frequently is this whole theme of harvest, this whole theme of fruit, and the theme of harvest and how it's connected to salvation. We see in John 4, verse 35 for 36, that Jesus says, You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. See, in this, in this, uh, this section of Scripture, what Jesus is referring to as harvest. He's referring to the harvest of souls. And he's in this verse, we can, we can see Jesus' passion that we as a body, as we the harvesters, go out and see that other people are brought into the kingdom of God. And so we read this imagery, and it helps us to understand what's very important to God, but this imagery of the harvest is not just some New Testament principles. Actually, you really see it starting to develop even in the Old Testament. And you see it develop in the Old Testament around these concepts of the feasts and festivals that are mentioned in Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, God brings forward these seven feasts or festivals that are going to be celebrated throughout the year. And um, a lot of it is a lot of foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. And so we have three, three, hi, it's good good to see you, Jacob. I like that interaction we have going on, Jacob. That's some good preaching if you just keep talking to me while I'm up here. Keep these people awake. So we have these seven feasts and three of them are in the spring and three of these feasts all happen during Holy Week. We start with the Passover, go into the feast of the Leavened bread, and now we are at the feast of the first fruits. And so it helps us to look at these feasts to answer the question, okay, what is actually next? So on the day of resurrection, everybody in Jerusalem is either going to either be preparing for or are participating in this feast called First Fruits. So I just want to jump back a little bit and go over the, the feast. First, we have the Feast of Passover that begins on Good Friday. This was started back when the Israelites were in, in, in Egypt, and God was getting them out of, the prom, uh, getting them out of captivity, bringing them uh, into uh, to the Promised Land. And the whole theme of the Passover feast is to remember the faithfulness of God. To remember Passover reminds you on Good Friday that no matter what your circumstances in life is that God can bring a change that you're never stuck in any situation in your life. Passover always reminds us the day Jesus died that your life can always change. And the second feast we go through is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a reminder that sin can actually have a bad impact on your life. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts this period of seven days where you just focus on removing any sin from your life. And then we jump to the Feast of the first fruits, which is all about trusting God no matter what the situation in your life is. No matter what the situation in your life is, you're going to trust that God is going to bring a change. So first fruits all revolves around this, the barley harvest. Back in Leviticus 23, it talked about on this day, on the Feast of First Fruits, what all the farmers would have to do is you would have to go into your grain field. The very first part of the barley that you would cut, you would take a sheath, which is a bundle of it, you would bring it to the, 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 the temple, you would give it to the priest, and the priest would wave it in front of all the people, and he would bless that sheath of barley, and in return, bless our, our the rest of your crops. So it was part of this, this feast or festival that you would bring the first of your crop to the temple so that the rest of your crop would be blessed. See, the deal with, the deal with it, though, is You could not use the rest of your barley harvest until you gave the first portion to God. That's the big deal about the first fruits. You couldn't, like, harvest a bunch of your barley, eat a bunch of it, and then, oh, yeah, when I get a chance, I'll go bring some of it to the temple to to dedicate it. No, you had to bring that first. So suddenly you can see, okay, that's kind of a big deal because you know that Israel, that's a big agricultural society. You depend on your crops. You depend on your crops to eat. And you depend on them you know, to sell. So, you know, for a lot of the people, a lot of the farmers, you know, they lived harvest to harvest. You might be getting through winter and saying, okay, I got just enough barley in my cupboards to last me this amount of time, and I know that second crop, the, that first crop is gonna come in. So you're kind of you're juggling your barley supply, kind of like some of us live paycheck to paycheck. Farmers live crop to crop, and you're kind of trying to figure out how you're going to survive until you can harvest the next. But this is the deal. That first barley that you cut to bring to the temple, you have to dedicate that before you can start eating your new crop. So that's kind of, that's kind of a big deal here with the first fruits offering because you've got to really trust God. You've got to have a lot of faith in God that you can survive till after the first fruits offering. See, in Leviticus 23, we get the instructions, verses 1, 10 through 11. It says, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you enter the land I am giving you, and you harvest its first crops, bring the priest a bundle of the grain from the first cutting of your grain harvest. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest will lift it up to the Lord so it may be acceptable on your behalf. See, this is basically what God is saying to Moses in the Old Testament. This is before they got out of captivity. God's saying to Moses, look, I'm going to take the nation of Israel, I'm going to take them out of captivity, and I'm going to bring them into a land that is very prosperous. They are going to have ground that is very fertile, that's going to grow a lot of produce. They're going to have big harvest. I am going to bless them abundantly financially. And God is saying to Moses way back when, he's saying, look, but it's going to be easy for your people to take credit for what's going on. It's going to be easy for them to think, look how good I am and how successful I am. Look what I did for myself. So Moses, so God says to Moses, you tell your people, I don't want them eating any of this crop before they give it. they dedicate the first portion to me. Because I want to remind them where every good blessing in their life comes from. I don't want them to take credit for him, but I want to remind them that it's actually me who has gave them the ability to prosper. And so we kind of look at these festivals and we think, okay, why did God require this? What is such a big deal about you have to give him the first portion? Why can't you like eat some of the barley and maybe give him some in a couple weeks later? What if you're running low? Why is the first that you give to God So important. See, we know God doesn't need the money. See, the first thing that God required the first is he wants your heart. And he wants to protect your heart. See, God always knows what you give to first is where your heart is actually at. He knows what you are going to make a priority first is where your heart is at. So God's saying, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to help you out. Your first priority is to give to me. Because when you give to me, then God has your heart, but God also wants to protect your heart. See, the second thing God required it is because God wants to sanctify or make the rest of your crop holy. See, giving the offering before you process the rest is a way of saying, God, I'm going to put you first no matter what. I'm going to trust you so much that my obedience, I know if I'm obedient, you're going to take care of everything else. See, in Romans 11, verse 16, it says, If the part of the dough offered as a first fruit is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. See, Paul is basically saying in the New Testament, he's saying, look, the first portion has the power to redeem the rest. So God is saying, if you give me that first portion of barley, I'm going to redeem the rest. I'm going to bless the rest. If you trust me enough to give me the first, I will bless everything that follows it. And that's the whole principle that was in the Old Testament, but Paul picks up on the New Testament. And the third reason that God required this is because he wants to bless you. God wanted to bless the Israelites, and he wants to bless every one of us. In Ezekiel 44 verse 30, it says, Give the first portion so a blessing may rest on your house. See, Ezekiel's picking up on this theme. If you give the first to God, he is going to bless everything that follows it. Now, I know when we talk about blessing and what is a blessing, suddenly we kind of go all over our theological spectrum. And we can get into some murky waters when we talk about blessings quickly because we can get people that are going to go a little off. We get a little excessive and kind of their view a blessing. So fortunately we all have it figured out here. <laughs> That's the good news. So I want to answer the question what is a blessing? Because I think we kind of get confused on what a blessing is because we live in a we live in a big monetary society. We tend to think a blessing is money. A blessing is a big bank account. We have a hard time thinking about a blessing. Is a struggle. You knew it would eventually come. <laughs> Surprised I made mean, it this far without crying. You know I, I, uh, you know, I was thinking today, you know, it's interesting. All right, now I'm going to just cry, so we'll just get used to this. I was thinking if you'd have asked me this morning at 7 o'clock, what is my biggest fear? I would have told you. My biggest fear is say I'm having a seizure in the shower. I told you that. It's my biggest fear. Do you know what the good news is? I experienced my biggest fear today. And Sam is okay. Sam is okay. Thank you. And I'm okay. You know, today, as much as I don't like seizures, I experienced my biggest fear, and I'm okay. God is good. God is faithful. And my biggest fear is gone. So I'm having a good day. Sorry, Sam's at the hospital, but I'm having... Oh, thank you. Bless you. And I'm not going to give the first away. <laughs> so that's my little side note there. I'm having a good day. I experienced my biggest fear today, and Sam's fine. And Sam's going to be fine, and things are going to go better. So back to what a blessing is. See, there is always this whole idea we, get, we struggle with a blessing, and it's because we think blessing is always money. Now, there is a connection between obedience and a blessing. In fact, four times in Deuteronomy, the Lord tells the people that if they obey the Lord, he will bless everything they touch. There is a connection between your obedience to God and blessings in your life. But what is a blessing? See, we have to be careful because we like to tie blessings to money. But in the English Standard Version of the Bible... In the New Testament, there is 112 references to the word bless, blessing, or blessed, but none of those are in connection to monetary prosperity. Out of 120 references to bless and blessing and blessed, in the New Testament, not one of them has to deal with monetary prosperity. That's New Testament. See, in the Keyword Study Bible, the Greek word translated bless means to be fully satisfied. It refers to those receiving God's favor regardless of the circumstances. So what is a blessing then? See, the core of the blessing is always satisfaction with God alone. See, as much as we don't like it, trials, difficult things in our life can actually turn into blessings in our life. See, a blessing has nothing to do with a million dollars or one penny. Blessings are basically part of the grace that we need in our life to draw closer to God. The core of a blessing is always whatever brings you closer to your relationship with God. And we can't forget that at all. That whatever is going to bring you closer to God is a blessing in your life. And sometimes blessings don't look like what you would anticipate them to be. So back to the first fruits. First fruits is all about trusting that what you give to God, He's going to provide and take care of everything you need. First fruits is always about trusting God. It's always about saying, "God, I trust you completely." So the festival of this first fruits is going on. Everybody in Jerusalem is either talking about it, thinking about it, or maybe observing somebody who's doing it. All the farmers are on their way to Jerusalem, bringing their sheath of grain to the tabernacle. The priests can get up, take their the sheath of grain, and wave it up in front of everybody so that the rest of the crop can be. Can be blessed so what is the big deal about the first fruits offering and why am i bringing it up today because a big deal about the first fruit offering is that you have to give away what you already have you have to give away what you have in order for god to bless the rest and sometimes that's a scary part see there's a tendency that we have is to cling to what we have and not give it away We sometimes want to cling to what's in our hand and say, God, you give me something else and then I'll let go of what's in my hand. But the principle of first fruits is sometimes you have to give away what you already have to receive what God wants to give you. It's hard to give up what's in your hand. Sometimes it's really hard to give up. See, we want the blessings of God in our life. Sometimes we have to give up what we have in order to see the blessings that God will come in our life. See, part of First Fruits is that you really have to trust that God has something better for you. And this is a situation that Mary Magdalene finds herself in, in John 20. She has to give up what she's holding on to in order to get something better. So last week, we talked about John 20, verses 1 through 10, and we talked about how Mary Magdalene, how she went to the tomb early on Sunday morning. She went to the tomb with some of her girlfriends, and they were going to put some spices on Jesus' body that was in the tomb. And when they got there, they recognized the stone had rolled away. And Mary looked inside the tomb, and Jesus was missing, and she's distraught, going, where is Jesus? She thinks that somebody probably stole him. So she quick and she hurries and she runs and she finds the disciples. She finds Peter and John and she says, something's happened to Jesus. He's gone. And so the disciples go running back to the tomb way before Mary got there. They look inside the tomb and they don't know where Jesus is either. But John believed and he he, he recognized something in there. But so then the disciples take off running. Mary gets back to the tomb. She's crying. She's upset. She doesn't know where Jesus is. And the disciples have left her so she's alone at the tomb and there's no Jesus. So this is where we pick up in John 20, verse 11 through 18, that Mary, oh, I missed a few. Um, All right. So Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was a gardener. Sir, she said, if you have, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and she cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said for i haven't yet ascended to the father but go find my brothers and tell them i am ascending to my father and your father and to my god and to your god mary magdalene found the disciples and told them i have seen the lord then she gave them his message so this is a situation mary gets back to the back to the tomb she's upset she's distraught she doesn't know what's going on but she decides to look in the temple. she decides to look in the tomb again And I love the scripture that says, and she stooped to look in. To stoop means she got down low. She got down low. She went to a different perspective to look in the tomb. And sometimes when you're looking for Jesus, sometimes you just need to take a different perspective. You need to get your body down low. And I think it's kind of the picture of almost like a picture of prayer that she bent her body over and she looked in the tomb. And suddenly she saw those two angels. And she's having a conversation with the angels. And they asked her why she's crying. And again, she tells them that she's looking for Jesus. You can tell Mary is very distraught. Because for the second time, she says, I'm looking for Jesus. And then she's getting ready to leave. She's getting ready to walk out. and She's getting ready to walk out, and suddenly she sees Jesus. But she doesn't know it. She thinks he's the gardener. And so Jesus said to her, he said, you know, why why are you crying and who are you looking for? And so since Mary thought it was a gardener, once again, she said, you know, I'm looking for Jesus. See, she's distraught. She keeps bringing this up. I am looking for Jesus. I'm looking for Jesus. And then suddenly Jesus said her name. He said, Mary. And suddenly everything made sense to her. Suddenly she had the faith to know it was Jesus standing there and it wasn't the gardener. See, one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith, or one of the puzzles of the Christian faith, is that we learn to see by hearing. See, that Mary, that day, she saw Jesus. He talked to her. But it wasn't until he called her name that she could actually see him. See, in Romans 10, verse 17, it says, So faith comes from hearing. That is hearing the good news about Christ. See, Jesus speaks and says, Mary, and with this word, suddenly her faith comes alive. And our eyes are opened and see, she sees Jesus. See, this is a picture of your walk with Jesus. We must first allow the Lord to speak to us through his word. And then we can actually see him. We first need to hear Jesus before we can see Jesus. And See, that's why reading our Bible is so important. Because if you read your Bible, you begin to hear Jesus so you can start to see Jesus. And that's why it's so important that we come together in church or other groups. We get together to hear Jesus and then we can see him. See, I think sometimes we like to do it backwards. We want to see Jesus and then we'll hear Jesus. But hearing always comes first. And so Mary, we learn that for her on that day. She first had to hear Jesus before she can see him. And the next part of the conversation gets a little interesting. Jesus says to her, don't cling to me. Not what you would expect Jesus to say to a woman who's crying, who's very distraught, who's been looking for Jesus all morning long. It sounds a little insensitive to say, don't cling to me. Here she's kind of in a panic mode, worried, where is Jesus? She thinks somebody steals him. She's running all over town telling people, and then they're outrunning her. And she's at that temple crying, and she doesn't know what's... She's at the tomb crying, doesn't know what's going on. And, and Jesus says, don't cling to me. It really doesn't seem like a nice thing that Jesus would say to her. But see, like that first fruit offering, sometimes what's in your hand is hard to let go. And that's why Jesus is telling her, saying, don't cling to me. See, Jesus, remember, is the first fruit offering. And sometimes we cling to the first fruit offering because we don't want to risk giving it away because we're not sure what we're going to get in exchange. But see, God always has a bigger plan. See, God always has a bigger plan with that first sheath of barley that you bring. And God had a bigger plan for his life for mary and that's why he's saying don't cling to me i want to stop here and say jesus isn't saying to her you know don't trust in me don't believe he's not saying that he's not saying don't follow me he's not saying don't depend on me no he is saying he's saying depend on me trust in me follow me seek me but what the scripture is saying he's saying to mary is saying don't limit me don't limit me right now Don't limit me with just dying on the cross and rising from the dead because I have more than I'm going to do. And sometimes we do that in our life. We cling to Jesus as a resurrected Jesus, and we forget about the Jesus that's the ascended Jesus. And Jesus is coming to Mary right now, and he's saying, don't cling to just part of my story. Because Jesus knows that he has to go to heaven in order for the Holy Spirit to come back down. And some of us get really comfortable, including myself, with just having Jesus. We get comfortable with resurrected Jesus. But sometimes ascended Jesus is a little different because that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Because when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, so does some of the responsibility. See, in Acts 1 verse 8, it says, But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. See, that changes things a little bit there. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit's getting involved in this equation. And suddenly, there's this thing called power that's coming into your life. And suddenly, there's this thing called witnessing that comes into your life. And sometimes, we just like to hold on to resurrected Jesus. We like to hold on just to our personal Savior, and we forget that there is the ascended Jesus and there's the Holy Spirit. So Jesus interrupts Mary by saying don't cling to me because number one, Jesus had a mission and number two, Mary has a mission. And Jesus is about ready to tell Mary what her mission is. And so after Jesus says don't cling to me, he says to her, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So what's the big part about sending to the Father, we go back a couple chapters to John 16, verse 17 to 15, where it says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. Advocate meaning the Holy Spirit. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me, Righteousness is available because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because of the ruler of this world has already been judged. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it right now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truths. He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you what he has already heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever you receive from me. And see, that is why Jesus needs to go to the Father so we can receive the Holy Spirit. See, this is the good deal for us. That we might not be able to see Jesus, but everything that Jesus did is going to come to us in the form of the Holy Spirit. But now Jesus is going to send to heaven. He's going to be constantly making intercession for all of us. And that's why Jesus is saying, don't just cling to the resurrected Jesus because I need to ascend to the Father so you can have the Holy Spirit and so I can pray for you. But then Jesus tells Mary, okay, you have a mission. There is something that you need to do. He says to Mary, but go find my brothers and tell them. And I don't like this translation because it says brothers. It really should be brethren. But really the best translation is, but go tell the family. This is the first time the, inter, the the thought of the family of God is introduced in the scriptures when Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, go, tell, go find the family and tell them, I am ascending to the Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. He's bringing up this whole concept that we are family. And so he's saying to Mary something very important, go tell the family. Go tell the family this good news. See, when God comes into your life, he doesn't just come into your life to be your personal Lord and Savior. He comes for your family. And he wants a big family. And he's saying to Mary, you got to tell these people. You got to go tell your family what I'm going to do and what I plan to do. So Mary goes off and she tells, she finds, all right, threw me off. So Mary goes off and she goes, tells the family the good news about Jesus. So I want to answer the question, why why is Jesus called the first fruit? Why is Jesus called the first fruit? Why does Paul call Jesus the first fruit in, in Corinthians 15? This is really important. It says, Paul says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So, how is Jesus the first fruit? See, first fruit is simply giving to God what is first. So, if you're producing barley, you give barley first to the Lord, and then he redeems the rest of the crop. See, Jesus was the first sacrifice made by God on behalf of man. So because Jesus was sacrificed and the first was given to God, he redeemed the rest. That's why Jesus is our first fruit. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, the rest was redeemed. And the rest was blessed. And that's why Jesus being the first fruit offering is so important to all of us. That's why celebrating the first fruit offering is so important because through being the first, Jesus redeemed the rest. And that's our confidence that we have. Why we get to go to heaven someday after we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we trust him and follow him is through our faith in Jesus, we have been redeemed because the first has been given to God. So what does this have to do with me besides securing my salvation what does this message have to do with me see it's easy for each of us to cling to a part of jesus just one part but we don't cling to the big part of jesus see mary Magdalene, we don't know much about her we know that she was one of the first followers of jesus we know she traveled with jesus but we also know that she was delivered of seven evil spirits that she was delivered of seven demons so obviously she came to jesus pretty distraught and jesus did some miraculous works in her life to save her to redeem her and to restore her and now she's actually one of the first evangelists in the bible one of the first ones to come to the the tomb and to find jesus and he says go and tell Mary's been through a lot in her life, and she's had a lot of restoration in her life. And I think it's easy to be like Mary and say, I just want to cling to one part of Jesus. I want to cling to the resurrected Jesus that is going to save me. My sins are forgiven and I'm saved. But clinging to the ascended Jesus, clinging to the mission part of Jesus, that's a different part. And I think it's easy for us to cling to the resurrection instead of clinging to the resurrected, the the ascended Jesus, where now we are responsible to go and tell the message of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus put on Mary. He said, Don't cling to me. Don't limit me. Don't limit me, Mary. I have so much more that I want to do in your life. And there's so much more I want to do in your family. And that's why this is important to understand first fruit. Because there's so much more God wants to do for each of us. And there's so much more he wants to do in our family. And there's so much more he wants to do in our city. And there's so much more that he wants to do in the world, but he needs us. He needs us to go and tell the message of Jesus. So I'm going to have the worship team come up and lead us in a final song. And as they lead us in this final song, let's, let's just... Just if you want to stand or sit. or Let me pray before they lead us. Father, I do thank you for today. I thank you, Lord, for this message and for your word, Lord. That you want to do more in our lives than we could understand. Father, I do pray that you bless each person here. That you'd encourage each person here. Father, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would move through us, Lord, that you would speak to each person here. I thank you, Lord, how you spoke to Mary when you said her name, Lord. She could hear you and she could see you, and her faith was—faith came alive. Father, I pray for each person here, Lord, that their faith would be stirred right now, Lord, even as we enter into this final song, that you would stir us, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us. And Father, may we hear what you're telling us to do with this message, I pray.